I know my Savior cares. Isn't that a powerful song and a message so very direct and so very meaningful? And indeed, those songs as well as the others that we sang had tremendous and uplifting messages to them. And we're so thankful that we can join our voices together in the way that we have already tonight. As we come to this part of the lesson, this part of the service, we're going to give a thought to a lesson I've entitled, From Terrified to Trusting. And probably you already have a sense of the text to which we'll go based on that reading. Just a minute ago, as Joy read from Matthew 14, if you'd be turning to that chapter, we'll look in some detail at a few of the aspects and features and then make application of those matters to ourselves. To do that, these introductory thoughts will motivate us or at least set the course in action. One of the things that the Word of God puts before us as so significant is the issue of transformation. You and I know well what it means for an entity or a person or something to be transformed. Well, indeed, as the Bible makes a description of those things, in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And thus, in a passage such as that one, we come face to face with the issue of transformation. Many characters in the Bible give us explicit examples of their transformations. Sometimes it was in a way that was positive and good. Other times they went from what was good to what was much less good. You'll notice on that slide, every one of us are encouraged to put off that old man and to put on the new. That means a transformation. Colossians 3, in fact, says much about that. For right now, why don't we turn to Matthew 14 and look at the explicit example of a change in the life of a man named Peter. As we do that, of course, our scenario in some particulars may not be the same as he is. But nonetheless, what great principles are found in it. Let's start like this. Our Savior had just finished feeding the 5,000. And in fact, as you and I well recollect, and I've tried to highlight it here, there was an occasion in which 5,000 men were assembled with an interest in hearing the Master teach. That sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Oh, if we only had a nation that was filled with individuals earnest and desiring to sit at His feet. But yet, as the Lord in fact fed them with that 5,000, it came to be near the end of day. There was a problem. They were needing something to eat. And as you can see on that slide, Jesus first challenged His disciples. Give them something to eat, He said. And you can perhaps imagine the shock upon their faces. Lord, what are we going to feed them with? 5,000 men, not counting the children and women, would be able to eat a fair amount. At that point, we noticed that Jesus had the group, in fact, considered. And there was five loaves and two fish that a little boy had. Jesus made use of that five loaves and two fish. And He fed that entire multitude. He did so, in fact, in such a way that there was a dramatic amount left over. 
so much so that they gathered up baskets and took a good amount away with them. But you'll notice as all of that came to its conclusion, at the bottom of the slide, that brings us to some observations. In verses 22 to 33, this is what you and I read. And straightway Jesus constrained His disciples to get into a ship and to go before Him unto the other side while He sent the multitudes away. And when He had sent the multitudes away, He went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when the evening was come, He was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and called him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped Him, saying, Of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. That reading from verses 22 to 33 put before us a scene likely somewhat familiar to us, one we may have read many times. And yet, as we close that slide, you may note this with me as verse 22 begins. The Lord had just fed this multitude, but now it was time for them to be sent away. They had eaten their plenty. And that verse goes on to say, Jesus constrained His disciples, meaning He gave them orders. They may well have had other ideas in mind, but He insisted that they, as the text says, go before Him to the other side. And so they boarded a ship and proceeded to cross the Sea of Galilee. As they did that, And the next slide takes us further. We learn rather quickly that Jesus successfully sent the multitudes away. And then in verse number 23, He went up to a mountain. The disciples had been sent away. The multitude had been sent away. And now the Master was alone. And you may notice immediately it says, as He went into that mountain, the purpose for which He went was to pray. We'll have more to say about that in just a moment, but aren't we impressed? In fact, aren't we immediately and remarkably so, very much in consideration about what the Master was choosing to do? He had just labored at great length and no doubt to carry out the features of taking care of the 5,000. One might have thought he'd go for a nap. Maybe one would have thought he would have just used a time to rest, but rather he chose to pray. He chose, in fact, to invest His time in a way that ought to be a tremendous and teaching tool to you and me. But let's look even further than that. You'll notice furthermore, verse number 24 now shifts our attention to the following direction. The ship was now in the midst of the sea, 
Could I direct your attention? In the midst of the sea. They had now made it a fair distance from shore, those apostles had. And it goes on to say very quickly that it was tossed with waves. It was not a calm sea. It was not, in fact, a tranquil or serene place to be, but rather the text is quick to say the wind was contrary. You and I perhaps appreciate that on a ship at sea, especially likely no larger than that ship was, for the wind to be contrary would be a dangerous situation. It would definitely pose some very difficult challenges. What's more, one more thing. Did you note the timing? Verse 25 highlights it like this. In the fourth watch of the night, given the fact that those events of feeding the 5,000 had taken place late in that previous afternoon, and given the fact that, of course, the Lord had been able to send that multitude away, no doubt much sooner than this, a number of hours had elapsed. The apostles were struggling at sea aboard that ship, and it was now sometime between 3 a.m., and 6 a.m. in the morning, as you and I would reckon it. The fourth watch of the night. No wonder in light of that, you'll notice the disciples were exceedingly troubled. And when Jesus was walking on the water to them, it says in verse number 26, they thought first it was a spirit. They gave initial implication that in fact this being, or at least this thing they were seeing, was some kind of apparition. A ghost, if you please. Maybe that gives you and I an immediate impression as to the degree of the troubled mind of these apostles to think that it could be such a thing. When you and I know there's no such thing as ghosts, and yet all the while, notice just how panicked they must have been to have allowed their mind to go to that extreme. And yet you'll notice that Jesus very quickly said, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And with that voice, notice the reaction of Peter. Peter was the first to answer and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. In the midst of that kind of storm at sea, in the midst of that kind of contrary and boisterous circumstances, it was Peter who had enough sufficiency and enough confidence that if it were the Master, He could issue an an invitation. And so it was. In verse number 29, Jesus said one word, Come. It really was Jesus. And He really did issue the invitation. And you'll notice that when Peter was come down out of the water, he walked on the water. Here was a man, a human, walking on water. You'll notice setting aside, if you please, the force due to gravity, setting aside the various particulars that otherwise would have led to his quick and no doubt rather careful and fatal movement into that water. And yet as Peter walked on the water, how impressed we could be when we read verse number 29 and 30. Peter walked on the water. We don't know what distance the text doesn't say. But you'll notice how often during the remainder of his life must surely Peter have reflected on that event. After all, what other human has ever done it? Furthermore, you may notice verse number 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, 
he was afraid. His attention at some point became focused upon the wind, focused perhaps upon the raging waves in the water, focused upon something other than the Master. And at that point he began to sink. But you'll notice that Jesus was nearby. And Jesus, the text quickly tells us, Immediately Jesus stretched forth His hand upon Peter's cry, Lord, save me. And then you'll notice Jesus had some more discussion with him while he was still standing on water. O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? The Lord rebuked Peter right there on the water. Both of them. What a place for a sermon. What a place for a very strong and powerful teaching tool. And yet, it was on that location that that took place. And you'll notice furthermore, it says, when they were coming into the ship later, verse 32, it was then that the wind ceased. Peter was standing there with Jesus on the raging water in the midst of the contrary wind, and it was there where the Lord said, Why did you doubt, Peter? How did your faith become so little? It is in that regard we notice verse number 33. Those apostles, those aboard the ship, they had been witnessing this, it would seem. And when they saw the wind instantly calm, and the waters instantly become tranquil, the text says, they worshipped Him, saying, Of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. They were convinced at that moment, having seen His mastery over nature, His mastery over the features of the weather, if you please. And no wonder, in light of all those things, we close that slide and quickly give very immediate attention to some additional thoughts on this one. But in so doing, it prepares us to make a few applications to you and to me. The Holy Spirit has seen fit to preserve this account in the Holy Bible. When all the while there were lots of other things Jesus did, according to John 21, verses 20 and following, that were not recorded. What is there in this that could be so helpful so meaningful to you and to me. Let's begin to make a few observations, beginning with this one. Maybe some of these are almost immediate, but it certainly will not hurt to give attention to them because the Word of God so often reminds us of it. What about that storm on the Sea of Galilee? That storm, again, had become a rather raging matter. It had become a thing that was in fact very troubling. And these apostles were beside themselves, the text says, with fear. They were afraid. May we pause to say, will there be circumstances in your life or mine that might well be described as a storm? And it may not have anything to do with weather, but storms of life, storms related to the things in life. And if you and I have lived any length of time, we understand that answer is a certain yes. The storms of life. Let's notice a few observations. Those storms that you and I face, there are times that just in parallel to the storm we read about here, they can be severe. They can be very crushing. They may almost appear overwhelming. And yet, by the very token and the nature of the promise of the Word of God, we must not lose hope. Could I invite your attention to a few of the examples in the Bible? 
some of the most noble characters in all the Word of God. Isn't it true that they had their storms in life? David was said to be a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? As you and I read in 1 Samuel 13. And yet, recollect with me this. Isn't it true in 1 Samuel 16 that although he was a respectful youth and that he directed the most careful of language with respect to Saul, he is the Lord's anointed, David said. And yet that very man whom David respected so much tried to kill David more than once. He was furious with David. He was jealous of him and wanted to get rid of him. Later on, this same man David, you may remember the troubles in his own house that all stemmed from the character of his sinfulness. The adultery he committed with Bathsheba, the drunkenness that he in fact attempted to bring upon Uriah, the features concerning deception, the murder he committed. All the while, we yet find a man who, when Dathan came to him and told him, You're the man, David, 2 Samuel chapter 12 tells us, and the sword will never depart from your house. God, through the prophet Nathan, was not telling David, your life's going to be a peaceful and easy thing. There are going to be troubles and problems, and didn't David have them? His own son, in fact, usurped the throne in his very eyes. David had to run out of town to protect his own life. How would you like to have to flee from your own son? Wouldn't that be awful? And yet David did it. Not only that, he witnessed that same son in death. Sometimes we're often told that one of the most difficult and challenging things is for a parent to have to preside, if you please, over the funeral of their child. The sword never departed from David's house. You may notice other examples such as Jeremiah and Jeremiah 9. Here was a man as loyal to God as one could imagine, in the sense that despite the fact his countrymen had turned against God, they accused Jeremiah of being a traitor. You are a traitor, they told him, and in fact so much a traitor that they imprisoned Jeremiah, though a faithful prophet he was. Perhaps one final example in Daniel chapter 1. We notice that fine youth we recognize as Daniel though in this far distant country of Babylonia, we nonetheless find that he himself found himself in a dire condition. Isn't it true that later this very man Daniel is such that he ended up in a lion's den? Did he not? Daniel chapter 6. That list could go on and on, but suffice it to say, and we will simply note this, as Christians, you and I must understand that the day we became a Christian, the day that we confessed Christ, the day that we were immersed by baptism into Jesus, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, that was not the day that we were given a pass through all of the problems of life. They shall come our way. In texts such as 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Among the things that we may then be called upon to face may well be an issue in persecution, the directed assault of unbelievers against you and, and, and me. We mustn't be too shocked or surprised when it happens. 
Did Jesus say in John 16, 33, In the world you will have tribulation. The Lord said that very directly, didn't He? The world and the things of it will bring to you and me matters that will disturb our peace of mind, matters that will cause us a troubled spirit if we will allow it to do so. Is it any wonder, one final verse in 1 John three thirteen, The apostle of love declared, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Oh, indeed, just as there were storms that Peter and the others literally dealt with here, might you and I take to heart the fact that there will be storms also for you and for me. But what about a second lesson and one that develops a bit further in the study? We noted a moment ago that a number of hours elapsed and then Jesus came walking on the water sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They had already been struggling on the water a number of hours by then. I wonder why Jesus waited so long. Why did the Master tarry? If they were in the midst of such disparity in their thinking, such troubledness in their heart, why didn't Jesus come sooner? Why didn't He must miraculously appear right near the ship a couple of hours earlier and set their minds at ease? Maybe in that observation, there could be some good appreciations for us. Let's develop it like this. Perhaps it would be tempting to question the timing of Jesus. Did He wait too long? One of the things you and I must keep in mind is, He, that's Christ, hath done all things well. Mark 7, verse 37. The Lord never made a mistake in a matter like that. I suspect that at least at first thought, Martha and Mary may have wondered, it. Why didn't you come sooner? My brother wouldn't have died if you'd have been here. John chapter 11, verses 22 and following. But yet the Master delayed His coming then. There was a purpose behind it. There was a lesson in glorification for the way of God in that which was to take place in the raising of Lazarus. In this instance, we must trust in the fact that as the Lord delayed His coming, any it was to be a very powerful and moving and compelling set of lessons for all who would witness it. That would no doubt have included Peter, no doubt have included those others who noticed what they declared in verse 33, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. In other words, what transpired here? There was nothing improper about the timing. It redounded to the glory of the cause of God. Today, might you and I at least make some application of that to our heart. When you and I are in the midst of these storms in life, perhaps they're health issues, maybe they're problems in the family, perhaps problems in the church. And we might pray so earnestly, God, take care of this. I'm putting it on your shoulders. I cannot deal with it. I don't know where to turn or what to do. Days might pass. Weeks might pass. Months might pass. And as far as we can tell, it has not developed at all like what we had prayed for. Is God there? Did He hear? If so, why hasn't He done anything? May I submit it's the same answer here. 
I'm sure those disciples, after the Lord did come and after He made everything fine, I'm sure they perhaps could have wondered, why didn't you come several hours ago? We've been beside ourselves in fear all this time. You and I must trust that God's timing is always right. And He will always do what is in the best interest. In Genesis 18 verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We must never question that. We must never doubt that, but yet our faith needs to be buoyed sufficiently so that our faith in Him is complete. Some of the verses I would invite you to notice here. In the New Testament, several times passages such as these are found. May I ask that we listen to the wording of Romans chapter 5. Beginning early in that chapter, it says, beginning in verse number 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations. What's that? We glory in tribulation? In what way, in what sense, we, that is Paul, the apostles, the church at Rome, glory in, that is to say, find a reason for goodness attached to tribulations? That it all. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. What a remarkable man Paul was. As led by the Holy Spirit, he was even there able to say, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of these matters that challenge us, in the final analysis it will lead to patience, which means perseverance. It will lead to a sense of approval and it will develop our hope. If only you and I could see problems that way. But certainly it's difficult to see them that way, isn't it? Later on, James also had much to say about this. Look at James chapter 1. Beginning in verse number 2, James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Isn't that a tough verse? Count it a joyful thing when you appreciate the fact you have fallen into temptation. But then he goes on to say, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. To encapsulate all of that, it basically is saying, even in the midst of these tribulations, in the midst of these challenges, in the midst of these storms in life. You and I would do well to observe in them there is something that might be noteworthy in that it is the development of our patience, the development of our faith, the development of being able to see the handiwork of God even in the midst of these challenges. May I say that how much growth you and I perhaps are able to do seeing challenges that way. But let's go even further. For not only are these two lessons evident, let's take note of a third one. We stated earlier that as we read that text, those apostles themselves made note that they were fearful. Their fear is easy to see. And yet on that slide, you and I might note this. We commented earlier that their fear had reached a level of irrational character, thinking that there was a ghost but isn't it interesting that Peter had enough confidence in light of all of that to respond in the way that he did? 
the developments perhaps lead us to dope this. You and I ought not always think that fear is a bad thing. There are many instances in life in which fear actually can be quite good. I would even submit we encourage our children to have the right kind of fear. You don't trust anybody that invites you to get into their car with them. It needs to be somebody you know and love, somebody with whom you're familiar. Don't you trust just everybody? And not only that, when it is something dangerous to them, you have a fear for that stove. You have a fear for that grill, and don't you ever touch it with your hand. As parents, we encourage them to have the right kind of concern and the right kind of fear I would submit that we should embed in their thinking from an early age a fear for God and understanding that He is awesome and amazing and He is all-powerful. And you need to always fear Him so much so that you'll do what He says, the way He says to do it for the reason He says to do it. You don't ever question Him. So many times in the Bible there were those who faltered in that regard. There were those who, in fact, were led to question Him and even develop idols in their life. We've often noted just how much that God detests that. Surely in that light, as you and I close that slide, may I say that as you and I then develop a proper fear of God, doesn't it bring to our heart and to our mind, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What's the whole duty of life? What's the sole meaning, motivation, and purpose for which you and I should appreciate our existence here? Fear God. What's that? Fear God and keep His commandments. That fear of Him should be sufficiently motivational and sufficiently healthy that it leads one to obey Him, no matter what, in every circumstance of life. The whole duty of man is that. That's a great lesson for each of us, isn't it? And that greatness perhaps is only highlighted when we notice what courage that's able to develop. After all, if we know that God's with us, and we're completely confident of that, we might well be willing to do things like, at least in principle, what was exemplified by the courage of Peter. If you'd been the one in that ship, rocked to and fro by the waves and by the wind, even if Jesus had said, Be not afraid, it's I, would you or I have been willing to step out of that boat on the water, confident that Jesus would make sure we didn't sink? That took a lot of courage. I realize that as we reflect upon Peter, it's easy enough to, in fact, be a bit bothered by, why did you take your eyes off the Lord? But at the very least, he walked on water. And what courage he displayed. You and I, as a servant of Jesus Christ, if we too are those like we learned in Lesson 3, those who in fact fear God and place our trust in Him, we too can exemplify courage. Because we know that with God on our side, Everything will be all right. To develop that point, let's do this. I would ask you consider it on that slide. In the words of several other examples in the Word of God, 
Isn't it true? There were many individuals who, under the impression of and the conviction of the God of heaven, they acted in a way that was so different than the world around them. I recall a man named Joshua who went into battle, and he did so in a very unorthodox fashion. Walking around a city once a day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day, and in so doing, then shouting... And he had victory over the city of Jericho, Joshua chapter 6. Or I recall Jehoshaba, who in fact the royal seed was struggling beneath the difficulties and they were going to be wiped out under the evil of Queen Athaliah. And yet Jehoshaba was convinced of the royal seed of David and she hid the little baby. She hid Joash for six years. Six years. All the while, no doubt, taking great pains, making sure the wrong persons didn't see him. Because if Queen Athaliah had seen him, she'd have killed him. When the time came, at the tender age of seven, she brought out Joash, and he was proclaimed king. She had saved the royal line that would one day lead to Jesus. It took a lot of courage on the part of Jehoshaphat. Not only that, let's close that slide and notice, every one of us then can feel an element in courage. We could strive to serve God in the ways that He has equipped us by talent to do it. As you and I find those opportunities in life, maybe we, may we be quick to utilize them. And may we be quick to serve the God of heaven with them. The fifth lesson. Where is it we must keep our eyes? It's often been noted, and rightly so, that Peter was able to stay fully afloat and walk on that water while he was able to focus exclusively on the Master. But the text is very clear. When he began to notice the water and the boisterousness of it, he began to sink. One thing is for sure, and that is when you and I take our eyes off Jesus, we too will soon begin to sink. Our faith will begin to wane. The other issues in life will in fact overwhelm us and it'll be exactly like those who Jesus spoke of in Matthew 13. As often as we've reflected upon that parable that Jesus taught, we often call it the parable of the sower of the seed. There was wayside soil and there was also stony ground and there was also thorny ground. And let's pause for a moment in regard to the thorns. What did the thorns represent? You remember it, don't you? Those thorns, according to Luke's account, represented the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So when we take our eyes off the Lord and start thinking about our possessions, the other cares of life, and let's face it, they can be so many. From the time we rise in the morning to the time we go to bed at night, so busy with a life so full of activities, it can be easy to allow God to be squeezed right out of it. When we allow that to happen, we're going to be like the thorny ground. It'll choke out the Word. It'll choke out the things of faith. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10 verse 17. As you and I journey forward on that slide, did you notice Peter didn't sink all at once? 
he began to sink, and there was time for Jesus to reach out, and there was time for him to say, Lord, save me. You and I won't fall away from Jesus overnight. It'll happen gradually if it's to happen at all, and it'll happen slowly, but if the devil has his way, it will happen. That's why we must keep our eyes upon the Master. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. In closing that slide then, you and I have learned many things about this episode in the life of Peter. But as I said before, I entitled it the way that I did so that we can make these applications to ourselves. From terrified to trusting. There are times when you and I may well be terrified. We're afraid of the way things may develop because we don't know the future. None of us do. But may I say that if we will live faithfully with the Master, we have no reason to be terrified, but every reason to be trusting. Didn't Paul write in Philippians 4 verse 7, that the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts, notice the word, your hearts, and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you and I want the peace that passes understanding, that peace that only the Master can offer, we must keep our eyes fixed on the Master. Let's close our lesson like this then. From terrified to trusting. I hope we've each been motivated to be trusting, perhaps even to increase in that trust, as we use the example of this episode in the life of Peter. Tonight, as we examine ourselves, each of us, where do we stand? Oh, if you are being blown about on the winds of the storms of life, you do have access to an anchor. May we all use it. It is the anchor that Jesus Christ makes available to anchor that ship, your life and mine, in the way that's safe and in the way that is apart from harm. If we could help anybody tonight to become a faithful follower of Jesus. We want you to know the Lord loves you so much He died for you. But He wants you to faithfully serve Him because that's the, in your best interest and certainly it's what will redound in your best interest even in the life beyond this one. If you are one who's never become a Christian, won't you believe in Jesus with all of your heart? Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you have known the joy of Christianity, but you have allowed those thorns and those other things in life to develop to a point where the storms have not, are now great, you realize you can't calm them by yourself. Though you tr no doubt will try, you will not be successful. It takes only the peace of mind that Jesus can offer. And if you need to come back to your first love tonight, we would invite you. More importantly, the Lord does. He wants you back faithfully as a servant of His. He knows that that will be in your best interest. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, we implore you to come and the Master is begging. If we can be of any help, won't you come while together we stand and sing?